Hello, everybody. I'm Tony Kalo, and there they go with the Auxiliary Gate Podcast. The Auxiliary Gate. Big problem. Everybody, it's now time for episode number 167 of the Auxiliary Gate Podcast. I'm CC Broadus, joined by Alan Schneider and Jeff Riggs. How are you gentlemen doing this evening? Oh, wonderful on a miserable day in Louisville, Kentucky. It is a miserable mess outside. Absolutely agreed. Since last night, it's just been nasty. It's like nap weather all day, every day. It's rough to try and get stuff done. It's, it's nasty outside, but at least we've got Turfway Park to keep us warm during the I'm, week. Brother, you're preaching to the choir there. You know that, right? <laughs> Alan, uh, what uh, what could we We need a gimmick going into the spring. Like the, the March Madness, of course, is in a couple months. Is there a team that we could get you to bet against? And if they win, we could make you eat like a can of cat food on YouTube. You talking about in, a, in basketball or football? Well, anything. Football. How about I, mean, I would personally uh, bet against the Philadelphia Eagles right now, right? So if the Philadelphia Eagles ate the Super, or excuse me, if the Philadelphia <laughs> Eagles won the Super Bowl, you would eat a can of cat food on YouTube. Sure, put put me down for that. Yeah, I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, I don't even have a cat, but I guess I could. Was that sixty cents for a can at the store or something? How much is that? I've got it in my pet prize, the cheapest I could find. All it's right, a pretty good size can though. I mean, wouldn't be the first time I've been wrong about a sporting event in my life. But yeah, put me down for that. There it is. If the Philadelphia <laughs> Eagles win the Super Bowl, Alan Snyder will eat a can of cat food on YouTube. We'll stream it live on the Auxiliary Gate Podcast website. Go Tampa Bay. Go Bucks. Right. Okay. All right. So, how's everybody doing? Uh, I'm good. I'm excited for our guest tonight. We got someone of a legend supposed to be on here, whatever. So, uh, I'm excited for that. And and of course, we're in the heart of Turfway season, and you know how much I love that track. That that best racing, competitive racing. It's no, there's no super trainers, right? That people complain about The, the jockey colony is deep and contentious, and the prices are despite the mythology that you hear me rage about all the time are very haveable and stuff. So, um, you know, that's, that's the track I like the best. So I'm happy. Any, anything that stood out since we last uh, convened on here? Um, I I don't know. I I would just say that there's a lot of jockeys out there riding really well that riding this. I know they're not the top notch jockeys in the country, but there's a there's a about a seven or eight and they're riding that course really well right now and and I've mentioned for Bashitz is riding them very well, uh, Burgos is riding it very well of course I'm I'm biased with Farron Farron's riding it very well, uh, help me out if I'm not gonna remember I'll, obviously Machado and and Corrales is starting to heat up but there's some of those second tier guys that people don't really think about, Alex Alamo, oh Alex Achard's riding very well excellent excellent point there, and I know I'm forgetting some it's off the top of my head but. Uh, Yarmory Correa has been doing well. Yeah, oh, exactly. Yarmory Correa. And there's two or three others that come to mind. But the reason I mention that is because you'll look down, those, these guys, 
they're 13 to one, they're 18 to one, they're six to one. Right. And, 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 and they know the course. So there, there's a consistency factor that, that you, that you can feel pretty good that the, that, you know, you'll get a decent ride for the price that you can get on the horse is kind of what I'm getting at. So. All right, Jeff, you're the fairgrounds, man. You're notoriously absent on our text chain when Turpoy's running. So we know, <laughs> That's you know, true. You, you got your eye on the New Orleans. Anything going on in New Orleans or coming up at least? Yeah, well, I mean, they had a really nice day on Saturday. They were um, all three of the stakes winners were kind of, you know, home track veteran favorites. And uh, Braun and Brow won the Gary Palmisano Memorial. And then uh, Overcharge kind of looked like she was maybe over the hill a little bit, but came back and very impressively won the uh, Bob Wright going to wire to wire. Looks like she's back. And then the horse that I can never say correctly, I don't remember if it's Ouvre or Ouvre, but. Um, She's also very talented and had been getting out in the stretch a little bit in her recent races and straightened things out on Saturday and, and was pretty awesome in the in the Nelson Menard Memorial. Um, as far as stuff coming up that you said, there were a couple exciting um, announcements today, actually. First, Fairgrounds, there's going to be a 10% purse increase across the board That's starting nice. January 25th. So especially for, you know, the owners and trainers out there, it's a, that's a really nice boost for those guys. Just means things are on the up and up for sure. And then uh, the Louisiana Derby nominations actually came out today as well. And that could be an incredible race this year. You know, it's starting to really gain steam as as one of the major derby preps. And eight out of the top ten current derby points earners are nominated, including, uh, you know, Fierceness, Locked, Timberlake, um, Track Phantom, Sneed, and Nash were the top three finishers in the Gunrunner last month. And all ran very well. They're all nominated as well. Uh, it's not surprising that Brad Cox has the most nominations. He has 19, um, including Ethan Energy, who was that impressive yes. maiden winner that we discussed last week. So I thought that was a, a confident move to even nominate that horse here uh, for this kind of race. But, you know, one to look at for sure. So that's exciting coming up. And next hey, Saturday, too, right, is a big, big – it's a really the first big day at Fairgrounds, right? The LeCompte. Is it next uh, Saturday? Comp day. It's, uh, let's see. Not, it's not, not this coming Saturday, but the next one. Yes, right. exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, that, yeah. LeCompte, Silver Bullet Day. Um, there are, I, I believe, six stakes races that day. So, I mean, yeah, it's a big day coming up. Yeah. Not this Saturday, but next. You know Which what means? impresses me? See, I, mean, I don't mean to interrupt you, CC, but you I'm know what impresses me with, uh, Jeff and for anybody, the Palmazano is the Chris effects of the word, of the world how they can rattle off the names of those stakes races down at the fairgrounds. I've seen them several times in my <laughs> life. Right. But they all, they also be named after people who are legendary to the, I guess the Louisiana circuit. Right. It's hard yeah. to remember all those names. I, the fact that you, I don't know if you had them in front of you or you just rattle them off, but in general, they all run together for me. So that's impressive. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not as good as at it as some of those guys who, you know, have been in, been on the scene for a long time but as you said all, all of those memorial stakes that are written are for for someone who is you know near and dear to the fairgrounds and uh um, you awesome. know yeah something that the, they were definitely part of the community there that community aspect so that's probably why you know a lot of times people remember those names more is because they're they, they have a personal connection I well i can guarantee this. i can guarantee I, I know the order of the races next saturday it's going to be the the last race will be the comp Right. The race before will be the Silver Bullet Day. Then the race before will be a uh, dirt race for older horses. And then before that will be the turf race that I have to spread in. Well, it might be re- reverse. The turf race I have to spread in We <laughs> first or second leg of the pick four. With two Chris Block runners in there, right? And a, and a Dallas. Dallas Stewart will have one. And, yeah. Right. 
Yeah, it, that's, exactly. that's that's always a Donnybrook. Then I have to single in the last race, and I'm always wrong. So <laughs> I'm looking forward to the Just Might stakes, which has got to be inevitable in the near future, right? Oh, definitely. He deserves it, absolutely. Yeah. All right, uh, let's get into some news here. Uh, this was actually pretty shocking. It came across yeah. earlier today. I just couldn't believe I read this. Uh, we had Phil Bauer on our podcast back, uh, I think, in early October. And on that podcast, he was talking about how he's, he was going to go to Australia with uh, his primary owner, Richard Rigney, to just on a vacation. And, and with his family, behold, with his family, yeah, yeah, with the family. And, and lo and behold, we we get news today that they actually had a plane crash while they were on that on that uh, vacation in Australia. And uh, uh, John Moynihan, who's a bloodstock advisor uh, for uh, for Stone Street and and I believe for uh, for Rigney. He was on the plane too, but every thank God everybody survived. A miracle, and, awesome! Yeah, just you can go to the daily racing form. They've got a story on it, and they've got a, uh, a a YouTube video attached to it from a news station in Australia. It's made made like that. It was just uh, unbelievable miracle that they uh, survived this. And there was there was nine Americans on board and, and one Australian who was the pilot, and. Uh, Thankfully, one broken arm, right? Just one broken yeah. arm. Yeah. Somebody had a broken arm, and, and everybody else got out, which is just – that's that's unbelievable because the plane was upside down. Yeah, uh, absolutely flipped over, yeah. Yeah, I read that it left the runway, mm-hmm. and um, the engine went out shortly as they crossed in the water. So it looped back, and as soon as it crossed – Onto the shoreline before it hit the run, it just took a nosedive, right? So, uh, I mean, it was lucky that it didn't go into the water. And the fact that they were able to walk out of that fairly unscathed, the thing just dropped, dropped out of the air. I mean, and you guys will back me up on this for those that don't know. Phil Bauer is a genuinely super nice guy. It, it really, he really is. And of course, it wouldn't matter if he wasn't nice. We wouldn't seem like it hurt, but uh, it was, it was really, uh, if you see the headline come at you, and then you see everybody's out. It just makes you uh, know there's a higher power out there, right? No doubt about that. That's uh, yeah. I, I gotta be honest. I'd never get on an airplane again. It's a little scary. I don't know how. I don't know how I'd get home. I guess I'd take a freightliner. They got right back yeah. on another plane. <laughs> exactly. That's what I was gonna say. In that article, it said they immediately got airlifted out, so they got right back on another plane. I can't imagine what that was like mentally. Anyway, thank God. Okay, so and then the last order of business. So we want to talk about this uh, horse, the Crimson Light. Everybody's been talking about uh, broke his maiden on Saturday, I think, at Aqueduct on a really sloppy track. If you get a chance, go watch that video. Watch that replay again. That was the most uh, odd, a lot of odd things going on right right now in the world. But this this is uh, one of them. Crimson Light just uh, made a mess of the start. I don't even know how to describe. It. He just kind of walked out of the gate and. Uh, he was spotted the field, gosh, what, 20 links, 25 yeah. links, maybe? And, and the fractions wide. are slow. The slower, 48 for the half or something for six and a half yeah. furlongs. Yeah, and yeah. Had no business even hitting the board in the race. He wound up getting up to win it by a nose at the end. It was a pretty remarkable effort uh, by Son of City of Light for Mandy Pope. And Mandy Pope, as much money she's put into the business, she deserves a good horse. Hopefully this horse turns out to be good. My my question is now, is this a play against next time? Crimson Light, everybody saw this replay. Yes, right. The, the horses he beat had to have been just awful. 
I mean, they just absolutely died on the vine late. And this horse gets up. So Crimson Light, wherever he shows up next, probably shows up at Sakes Company somewhere. Maybe, maybe goes to the Gotham or something like that in New York. But, uh, wasn't it New York bread? It was a a New York bread race, wasn't it? I don't know. I may be wrong about that. Honestly, I don't know. I I just saw the replay and the, and the the press clippings afterwards. But my, my question I posed to both of you all, uh, is Crimson Light good or was the field just that bad? I, I don't know because I don't I don't watch much Aqueduct, but I, I, what I would say is I would have to lean to the fact the field being I'm sure the horse is good. Don't get me wrong, because as I just said, it was like 23 and four. The horse, I think the horse had a clear lead, 48 and something for six and a half furlongs. I know the track was off. Now, if that were a contested pace in, the, in a one turn race such as that, yeah, you can see a horse if they're dueling up front you're, and they're kicking it. It's contested, say 44 and four, 45 and one. You can see a horse in a one-turn race like that making up and just flying down the center. That didn't really see the way this one was. So I would lean against the fact that it's probably that good a field. But then again, that's me going sight unseen. So, uh, Jeff? Yeah, I, I, I'm kind of taking it with a grain of salt. Um, I saw the buyer for the race came back at a 57, which is obviously not uh, that impressive. But you aren't expecting a huge number from some from a performance like that either. But I do think it is a little damning for for the rest of the field. I don't I don't think he beat any world beaters or anything. Um, I think he's better than a 57 buyer. But as you said, you know everybody and their mom saw the the replay of that and is going to be moving up against winners. I like playing against recent maiden winners against horses that have already run against winners for the first time anyway. So yeah, that's one I'd play against if I'm if I'm playing the races when he pops back. I play against the rest of the horses in the race. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, you want to draw a line through that bunch? I mean, until they show up for maiden forty or something like that. But that that was a New York bred race, by the yeah. way. Okay. Oh. All right. So now it's time to uh, shut the early proceedings down, and we're going to go straight to our special guest of the week. And Alan, you'll do the honors. You got it. All right, uh, tonight's esteemed guest is living the good life these days after spending almost, hard to believe I'm saying this, 40 years covering horse racing here uh, around these parts, including an incredible 31 of those years at the iconic home of the horse racing Bible itself, the Daily Racing Forum. Uh, We've all read his work over the years. We've won on his selections for decades, and it's time to catch up with the still freshly retired Marty McGee, folks, how is the good life treating you today, Mr. McGee? Oh, gosh. Uh, thanks, guys, first of all, for having me on. It's treating me good. Uh, we were talking before we started recording this about uh, the perils of being a jockey agent, and mainly it's the stress involved uh, for a, a relative newcomer to that endeavor, uh, like myself. But uh, overall, it's been good. I, I I loved writing about horse racing. I did it for as you mentioned, almost 40 years, starting with the Baltimore Sun back in 85. Actually, I was, I got a kick out of, uh, writing for the UK paper, the University of Kentucky paper in 80, or 80, 81, 82, and I, I got a kick out of showing John Oldham a story I did on him and back in 80, it was about jockey. 81. Right? Yeah, the jockey. jockey back in 81 when he was riding the favorite in the, in the Derby, uh, Rock Hill native. But anyway, uh, yeah, it's been good. It's uh time has flown. Um you know, I think all of us in our minds think that we're like 19 years old and want to prove ourselves and go get them and this and that, but uh now here I am. I'm eligible for Medicare in August and uh 
And uh, it, it's it's been a joy to, to do what I've done to be a, a participant in this great industry of ours, and uh, you know, just trying to crank out a few more years of, of a living. You know, it was I was thinking about this day because I'm getting close to my I work at Toyota. I'm getting close to being a retired from there. I'll go work somewhere else. So I'm looking forward to it as well. But I was thinking what's different with you is um, the horse racing world itself is a good place to retire from because you never really have to truly part ways with it, you know, like you would another profession, right? Yeah. You, I you mean, still go part time here. You're, you're working as a jockey agent. You're, you don't divorce yourself from this profession. Well, I probably won't. As you guys know, uh, you know the, the jockey I'm representing, Joe Talamo, he's uh you know, married into my family. He's married to my niece, Elizabeth. Elizabeth, Elizabeth is my daughter, Amy, uh, my sister, Amy's daughter. Uh, and then my brother, Paul, he's been training since 1987. He's currently at the fairgrounds, but normally he's here in Louisville, uh, uh running at Churchill and Keeneland and Ellis and Kentucky Downs and what have you. But, uh, yeah, it's been pretty much ingrained in my family. And uh, even when I do quote unquote retire, uh, whenever that might be, uh, I'm sure I will still have a, a great interest in it. Uh, you know, you guys know that I love to bet and uh, uh, handicap, and I, I, it was a big part of my job with the racing forum was, was uh, you know, just trying to separate the, the pretenders from the contenders and all that. And, uh, yeah, it's just it's the greatest game ever invented, and and that's, uh, that's part of the reason I, I still maintain such a, a great interest in it. So, you know, your brother is Paul McGee, right? And longtime uh, trainer around here in Louisville, around the Kentucky circuit, New Orleans. It's weird because in your family, he's the trainer, you're the journalist, uh, right? Uh, how, how did that happen? Did you guys flip a coin as kids? Did, did you go rock, paper, scissors? <laughs> what was the determining factor? I mean, he, he deals in horseshit. You probably had to deal with some horseshit on your side or whatever. I mean, how did that work out? Well, my dad was a dyed in the wool horse player. And, uh, he, as a matter of fact, his claim to fame was in 1955 before he had even graduated, uh, uh, college. Uh, he went to St. Xavier in Louisville and graduated in 53 and then he graduated Bellarmine College. He's actually in their Hall of Fame for, uh, for playing baseball. Wow, really? I didn't know that. Uh, and he was, in, he was inducted in 78, but uh, we were b- baseball fans, but, uh, in 1955, he hitchhiked with a friend of his to the Nashua Swaps match race at Washington Park in Chicago and, he just brought us up going to the track. I have uh, three other siblings. It's me, then my sister Susan, who worked out in California for a number of years at um, Hollywood Park and Santa Anita and Del Mar in various capacities. Then my brother Paul, uh, who became a trainer, and then my daughter Amy, excuse me, my my sister Amy. Uh, she's lived in California. She was married to Ron Ellis, uh, the trainer, for a, a long time. They might still be married. It's a don't ask, don't tell situation whether or not they're divorced. They've been separated about eight gotcha. But uh, I'm getting off track here. But anyway, my dad would take us to the track with $40 in his pocket. And, you know, we couldn't have a Coke or a hot dog unless he won. And he wouldn't bet the place. And I would get mad at him and all that. But uh, (laughs) we just uh, grew up up going to Churchill Downs. I I remember vaguely going to Miles Park. That's how far back uh, it was. My dad had some stories from Miles Park, uh, you know, the West End track in, in Louisville. Oh, you would trust me. We know about Miles Park. We, yeah. that, that's a story we'll talk about off air, but we're going to do a Miles Park pod soon. Yeah. It, it's, it's a great, it was a great place. And you know, for many years, you'd go out to uh, 264 and you can still see the outline of the track. Yes, up. you can. But, but, but uh, I think it's all gone now. And, uh, 
but anyway, I think it lasts for 20, 25 years. If, if you went out there, you could, uh, you know, tell where various parts of the track was. But anyway, he would take us there and my, uh, I always wanted to be a sports writer. Even when I was 12, 13 playing, playing baseball, I, that was my goal was to be a, a sports writer. And then ultimately it just kind of evolved into, well, hell, this is the best sport. So why don't I write about this? And I loved to be in this track. And meanwhile, my brother was pretty much the same, but he was, he was uh, more the animal lover. Whenever we had a dog, my dad would say, that's Paul's dog. And, uh, and, uh, um, it was just, uh, it just kind of evolved. My brother was galloping horses when he still was going to St. X, uh, and he worked for guys like Jerry Calvin, Angel Montano, Carl Bowman. You know, these are all names from the past. Uh, I'm old. I know them. Yeah. Cecil Bernice, who's, uh, T. Red's brother. So, uh, he came up the hard way. And, and then, uh, in 87, he, t- 85, I went to, uh, Maryland to, to work, uh, for an uh, ill-fated uh, publication called The Sports Eye. They were really a harness tra- harness publication out of New York. But uh, they deigned to uh, compete with the they were the initial competitors, to would-be competitors to the racing forum back in 85, and they were short-lived. And then the Racing Times, uh, you know, came along a, a few years after that. But um, anyway, I hooked on with the Baltimore Sun at 85. Meanwhile, my brother was still working on, on the racetrack uh, on the backside, and he graduated from Bellarmine in December of 86, actually came out to Maryland to live with me in Columbia, Maryland. And um, <clears throat> and then, you know, he, he started training on his own in 87. His first winter uh, was ridden by a kid named uh, Jesse Garcia. And in my travels to Tampa every winter, I would – I would say Pabarine because that was the name of my brother's first winter in the, in the summer of 87 at, at Churchill. And Jesse, oh, yeah, Jesse. how you doing? So, but anyway, that's long, long story, but, uh, that's how we eventually became professionals, so to speak, in the game. And, uh, we've both been there ever since. Two spokes on the same wheel, basically, right? It's, uh, it, I mean, it's the McGee name resonates around these parts because of that. So that's, that's on you two guys, right? And your dad, I guess. So. Um, well, my dad was just a horse player. He he had a, a chemical business. He died. He bred you. He... <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, he he was the reason that uh, we all kind of took a, a great liking to it. So the DRF. So now that you've left the DRF, right? The daily racing form. I mean, it's, it's uh, referred to it as the horse racing bible. CC grew up on it. I grew up on it. Going to the liquor store, going to the convenience store, getting the form before, you know, the computers were all the rage. Now that you've stepped away from it, I know you, you were in the moment for decades. Does it, does it, does it resonate with you that you actually were a huge contributor to uh, the main publication that we all know about, uh, the landmark paper in this sport? You know, Alan, I was, I was thinking about that. Uh, you know, I wrote for the Baltimore Sun for, Actually, I was mainly the handicapper and then the, the writer for The Sun from uh, 85 till early 92. And then actually, I, I went to work for the Racing Times for literally 36 hours. And <laughs> they, they folded after uh, Robert Maxwell fell off his boat. But uh, And then I was unemployed for a few months until uh, May of 92 is when I started with the form. But I watched this retrospective uh, the other night on uh, the old MASH television series and Alan Alda, they were interviewing him and he goes, you know, that was so long ago that it was almost like I'm, I'm looking at it as, as a different person. And, and mm-hmm. for me to look back and that's your question is like, can you realize how, 
you know, integral you were to their, uh, you know, to their operation. It's almost like, uh, it's almost like a dream almost. It's, it's like I wanted to be a, a, a sports rider and then I wanted to be a horse racing rider and I've, you know, and I did it. I lived the dream and, and I won various awards, but I, I always tell people that the real reward or award was getting to have that job. And it was just yeah. so great to get to go to the track and, and interact with all the people involved and just just be a part of it. And I'm really, truly humbled and honored by by the way it went. And, uh, you know, I just I, I was telling Joe Talamo, I never really screwed anybody over. Um, and I, I intend to not screw anybody over in this current capacity I have as a jockey agent. But it, I'm telling you guys, t- time flies. And it's just it's amazing that uh, that I got to do what I did. You know, you're right about the time flying. Because when I'm, I'm looking, I quoted your numbers earlier, 39 years as a writer, 31 years at the racing form. As someone who has read your work and followed your work for a long time, that's amazing to me. Does that make sense? And, and you were living in the moment. You were doing it, working for the Sports Illustrated of, of the horse racing industry. Uh, so I know exactly what you mean there. Yeah, uh, I appreciate it, Alan. You know, but but after a while, you get old and tired and, and – uh, my girlfriend and I, the last few years, you know, I went to Gulfstream. I covered Gulfstream off and on, mostly on since 96 during their championship meet, which entailed, you know, going down around Christmas and coming back toward the end of March. And I was just so relieved we didn't have to do that this year because, I, <laughs> number one, I hate driving through Atlanta. It's just so. I know. And, uh, and number two, it's just, it's, it became a grind and it really did become a grind the last few years, which was one of the contributing factors to me just saying, I, I, I need to retire. And, uh, you know, I, I Jay Pribman, my, my uh, dear colleague, uh, out in California, he kind of had the same thing and, uh, same feeling. It just, he did, he wrote for 38 years also. And it just, maybe that's the magic number. It's like, I, I just couldn't do it much anymore. I do intend. To write a book, uh, my memoirs, I just have so many stories that either print or, you know, to regurgitate or retell those stories and ones that never made the, made the uh, racing form that I feel compelled that I'll do it. But right now I'm just, I just don't have it in me to, uh, to get up and, and do all that writing every day. I hope you do because I was, I had seen an article that when you were left that you were going to write a book. And of course, we would all buy it. You've already sold three copies already, right? If you do, because <laughs> I was going to ask you about some of your memorable stories, but I was like, I'll wait, I'll let you save for the book because it would, it would be more than one book. You might have a sequel on your hands. You might it'd be an anthology, a mini series because 50 <laughs> years in the game, in this game in particular, you know, pardon my French, but you've seen some shit, right? And been around some stuff, right? I, I have. And I saw some stuff that really tugged at you. You know, some of my, these are things that you guys would never even think of, but, uh, or nobody would know, but Mike Morgan, I don't know if you guys remember, he was a leading rider at Keeneland, uh, back yeah. in, in 78, maybe, or 79. I'm 53, so I do remember these names. And, and he came to Maryland when I was there, and we would, there was a local bar there named O'Toole's. People would hang out there at the races, and I got to know him there. Well, then by the time I moved to, uh, back to Kentucky in the mid 90s, Mike had tongue cancer, and I remember, uh, talking to him in the Churchill, track kitchen one morning and it just i, I just my, my eyes welled up so bad I, I just, he was telling me just the most gruesome uh story about the treatment that he had he had to undergo that was one thing and there that was one story and another one richard conhorse when he would just miraculously was the 
leading trainer one summer at Indiana Grand, Indiana Downs, Horseshoe, whatever you want to call it. And uh, uh, he he and his wife, uh, Linda, went up there to accept the trophy. And like a week later, she died of a heart attack. It's just, oh, God. you know, the kind of powerful stories that uh, that you are uh, that you get to tell about people and how it happened. It, it just some real stuff that really tugs at you. You know, and there's some funny stories, too, that. There's a guy named Tom Cos, and he ran that horse Ray Jet in the 69 Derby, and he used to always threaten to beat me up if I rode about it because he was so embarrassed <laughs> about it. You know, he was, he was a distant ace. Uh, Richard DePath talking about his horse Great Redeemer in the 79 Derby. Uh, uh, spectacular bid had already finished, and here was Richard on the last place finisher in a field of nine, by the way. And he said, oh, the photographers started running out onto the track. And I said, wait, wait, I still got to, I still got to finish here. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, there's all kinds of stuff like that, that, uh, you know, that, that you get to come across. And, it, it, you know, again, it was a real honor to, to be a part of those. If, if, if you would get the opportunity to write that book, I would love to read it. I, I can speak for these guys too. So it would be a, it would do very well, Marty. It would do well, very well. I appreciate it. I, I, I probably will. I just, I just need to regroup in terms of, you know, it was just so exhausting after all those years of getting up and doing the same thing. And for the first few months of this, I'd, I'd, every morning I would say to my girlfriend, I would say, I don't have to ride for the form today. You know, <laughs> it was just really that part of it has been great. What uh, what the hell is a Hermes? You know what I'm talking you know, about in the DRF selection paper course, your yeah. face has been? Yeah, I was almost, you know, I was out with Steve Bick and he always loved calling it Hermes. They just had these nicknames for the selectors. Okay. You had Sweep, you had Analyst, you had Ray yeah. Count, you had Hermes, you had Consensus and Trackman and all that. It was just a way to categorize, uh, the, the man behind the mask or the lady behind the mask making picks. And that, that was the extent of it. But for whatever reason, they always assigned me Hermes at, at the Kentucky tracks. I started making those. When I first started writing here, I came back to Kentucky in 94 was my first year back. And uh, usually the, the columnists or the writers didn't make picks. I said, well, hell, I, I want to make picks. So, that you know, they they gave me that. And then just they would put me – sometimes they would use your name. Sometimes they would just put you under Hermes or whatever. But uh, it's just something that Bick and I used to play around with. And, yeah, it, it, Guys, this isn't, you know, we're not solving the problem in the Mideast. This is a game. This is supposed to be fun. You know, Say it so, all the time. And, and, Say it know, all the time. You're asking me what's Hermes. It's something silly is what it is. <laughs> I love it. But uh, I don't want to monopolize time, but I do want these guys to come back to me after I kick them. But I'm going to ask for I do send it to them. Going back to that selection page, right, uh, what was your most, I mean, we're talking a long time. You've been doing this a long time. But what would you say off the top of your head was your most memorable day? from that iconic DRF selection page. I mean, did you ever sweep a car? Did you ever give out a 90 to one shot? Is there anything that sticks in your mind that you're like, damn, I was on fire that day. I did, you know, in the early days when it was real hard to access the PPs, I would make some, sometimes when I was in a hurry and I had, you know, four or five stories to write that day, I'd make my picks real quick. And I would, I remember early, this had to be in the mid nineties. I picked about a 90 to one shot off the overnight uh, at Churchill, so that was kind of cheating. But one day, I swear to God, at Tampa, and it was fairly recently, I'm going to say it was about 2019, it was opening day there, and I was making picks for Tampa. And I picked the last pick five, and it paid 11000 for on a 50-cent bet. And that, you know, that was, using the, that was using the PPs. Cold. All five were on top. 
Damn. At it? No. Was I mad oh. at myself? Hell yes. <laughs> well, that's going to be my next question. <laughs> yeah, my dad used to say to, to, to pick and not bet is to not pick. It, you know, people say, well, I picked that horse. Well, did you bet on it? No. Well, did you bet it? Yeah. You speak with your money, right? You speak with that's, your money. And there's some random guy out there, Marty, that cashed for $11,000 and they should have tipped you. And they just walked right out and didn't do it. I mean, they probably <laughs> bet your stuff cold. And they might have spent 50 cents, right? So. Yeah, right. ACC, I'll let you have a, a crack at Marty. But yeah, I'd like to, I got a couple more from him. We could talk to this guy all day. Marty, I'm all over the place here. Uh, first of all, I got, I got a ton of notes. I don't know how this is going to go, but I, I want to say, first of all, I'm a big fan. Uh, enjoy your work. Uh, like like Alan said, I've been reading your stuff since since early '90s. So yeah, it's great to have you on our podcast. Uh, uh, let's see where we're gonna start. Uh, who's got better hair? Steve Asmussen at his uh, at his peak when he had, when he grew out that luscious mane, or or, or you're a beautiful blonde locks. Well, I'm gonna say I, I was there. I, I was there first. Because I'm older than Steve, and my hair was longer than his until he, you know, did that wild thing about six or seven years ago, whatever. And one day, I had to teach him, and it was kind of tongue in cheek. I said, "Here's Steve. Here's how you keep your hair out of your face." And I used my sunglasses and push it back and push all the hair back and all that. Yeah, and he just kind of looked at me, duh, you know. Yeah, but uh, no, I would not. I would. I used to tell people clothes and hair and all that stuff. It's just like, oh man, do we really? I, I'm just a guy. I don't really want to fool with that. I want to talk about, you know, horse racing. <laughs> well, you hear a lot of professional sports writers talking about uh, when they're all in the press box watching a football game or a basketball game. So there's no cheering in the press box. Now I know you're a better, you're a punter. And you've been to a lot of derbies where, you know, the press box probably is full. Is there cheering in the press box during a race? Yeah, there is during the derby especially. But, you know, Andy Byer, who I worked alongside for, uh, you know, all seven years in, in Maryland. Um, and that those are some great times for me. That would be a big part of my book was, you know, cutting my teeth, my sports writing teeth alongside Dale Austin and Jack Mann and, uh, Charlie Lamb, Ross Petticord, Clem Florio, and, and Andy Byer. Vinny Perone was one of the greatest writers. He caught on to the game so quick, it was unbelievable. But uh, Andy Byer wrote that uh, you can only cheer in the press box if what your potential winnings are are 10% of your net income or greater. So that that's a pretty good rule of thumb, I thought. Okay. Yeah, you, you'll see some uh, – yes, there's cheering in the press box, but – you know, dude, if you're if you got five to show on something or whatever, don't don't be going crazy. You know, there's a certain etiquette, uh, you know, unwritten etiquette that you had to follow. I understand. Going back to something you mentioned earlier, uh, you talked about the racing times. Now I remember this. This was back in my mid-teen years when the racing times was starting to roll out. I knew it was a big deal. You said uh, I, it only lasted 36 hours. I no, I was the I was the very last employee. As a matter of fact, I can tell you because my my niece Maggie, my brother my brother Paul's daughter Maggie, she was born on January twenty third, nineteen ninety two, and I took a train from Baltimore. I had just quit the Sun. I was I was going to go to work for the Racing Times, and I took the train up. And Steve Crest and uh, somebody else interviewed me, or just they said, "Here's what you're going to do. You're going to Oakland Park and blah blah blah." I got to Oakland Park in early February. Literally wrote one story for him 
and they folded the next day. They were actually in business from about, um, I'm, I'm going to say the late 89, maybe mid 90 until that fateful day in February of 92. That's when they ceased operations. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. They, 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 they tried to actually, I remember, uh, going handicapping out in California. I'd make, uh, quite a few trips to California because, like I said, both my sisters live out there and Amy still lives out there. Um, but matching up, I would take my daily racing form and take the, be- the buyer speed figures. They, racing times had, were the first ones that had the buyer speed figures. And I would copy the buyer speed figures race by race onto the PPs of the racing form, you know, the way they have it now. Right. So a lot of people probably don't remember that, but the racing times, that was more or less a joint venture with uh, Christ and Bayer under uh, the Maxwell regime, uh, and that's how they came about. But of course, the uh, the racing form blew them away. You know, racing form was a, like, had real very deep pockets back then, and uh, anybody who, who deigned to uh, compete with them were the, you know, they were they were going to be toast. You said Robert Maxwell. You said he fell off his boat. Did you mean that literally or figuratively? Well, you know, he, that was a real famous incident in history was, uh, 1991, Robert Maxwell. They don't know if he was murdered or, or what, but, uh, once he died, uh, under mysterious, mysterious circumstances, uh, that was the end of the racing times. They folded a few months after that. Oh, wow. Okay. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you could Google. Okay. I'm not real clear on the details other than, you know, once, uh, when I signed up, of course, I, I'd already quit the Sun. When the, the Baltimore Sun, when I quit in uh, January of '92, uh, they were offering to all employees of either the Sun or the Evening Sun, which was in the process of they were being in the process of, of uh, consolidating. Anybody who quit got a year's salary, and you're, then you're out the door. And so I said, well, <laughs> I'm, I was 31, 32 years old. I said, I, here I am. I'm, I'm out. Give me my check, and I'm going to go get another job. So that's when I went to work for the Racing Times, and then several months. Uh, actually, my first uh, gig for the forum was uh, in late May of uh, 92 at Monmouth Park, and I spent the whole summer there. And, uh, okay. Was, well, I was going to ask you about I was going to yeah. ask you when you started uh, with the Racing Forum, what exactly? Did you, did you happen to cover that 92 Derby? I think you, you started a little bit I, after that, right? I did not. I did not cover the, the Derby for uh, – actually, I covered the 91 – Dale Austin had quit the Sun in uh, 90, and I covered the 90. The only one I actually covered on behalf of the Sun as their main uh, racing rider was the 91 Derby won by Strike the Gold. And uh, I picked Hansel in that, by the way, and then I didn't pick him in the Preakness, and I was so mad at myself. I did pick him second. But anyway, um, Dale had uh, – so, so when I went to work for the Sun, I did not cover the – for the for the form, but I did I did attend the race, and uh, I hit a great try that day. Uh, <laughs> it made me a big winner, but uh, it was in the Churchill Downs handicap, which you know they don't call them handicaps anymore. But uh, uh, take me out beat uh, got beat a, a zot by Pleasant. Who was the good horse? Pleasant Stage or uh, not Pleasant yeah. Stage? The, the horse Pleasant Tap. Pleasant Tap beat Take Me Out right on the wire. And I crushed the try. I had a twenty dollar try, so that made me a big one. Yeah, take me, take me. I was trained by Mont, right? That's right. And and you know what? I, we had dinner. My my colleagues at the Forum Derby Week. They would have uh, 
they would have, we would have dinner at Pat's Steakhouse and they would have like an honorary guest and Mott would come once in a while. And one year I said, do you remember when Take Me Out got beat right on the wire by Pleasant Tap? And he had no recollection of it. It stunned me that he did God. not, he couldn't remember it. I mean, he's had so many good verses. So, uh, yeah, but I sure didn't remember it. And actually, I, I went and got the, either the chart or the PP on one of the horse on, on the Take Me Out. So 92. Yeah. Where were we? Go ahead. Go ahead, Mark. I forget where we were. Oh, yeah, about me going to work for the, yeah. And then uh, 93, I didn't even uh, cover the Derby, but I did come down. I was living in Chicago. I, I lived for literally like three years as a gypsy between New Jersey, Arkansas, and Chicago. And then 94, they asked me to come here. Uh, and, and Kentucky. 95, I went back to Oakland. That was the year that a cigar won the Oakland handicap. And that, and, uh, that crazy horse, uh, no, Rocamundo was the Rocamundo, Calamaro. Yeah. yeah, that was incredible. Uh, you know, that kind of story, but that was the horse that Calvin Burrell said was holding his breath during the race. <laughs> yeah. 90 to 1. He was 90 to 1. Or well, maybe yeah. 100 to 1. 108 to 1. 108 to 1. That's right. But, uh, yeah, so my last derby, my last uh, Arkansas Derby was uh, 95, and uh, uh, I'm trying to think who won that year. But uh, Concern won it one year, I'm pretty sure, for Dickie Small. See, I knew him from from, from my years in Maryland. And, uh, yeah, but, uh, you know, I, I haven't been back to Oakland for the races since that, since then, 95. And I've got a buddy who's wanting me to go down on January 27th this year because this year, my brother's running uh, – uh, miles ahead with Talamo to ride, and uh, oh. I don't know if I've got the get up and go to go down there for that. But anyway, <laughs> it's a long drive. It is. It's nine hours. I used to do it. I, I got caught in a, in a uh, snowstorm back in uh, I think it was '94 going down there, and uh, it, that was tough sledding down there. A real ice storm. But yeah, it's been a long time. What uh, what's the future of racing in Maryland now? Uh, I know they came out and I think the the Maryland government or, or some entity is going to take over Pimlico, and then I think Laurel's days are numbered. Is that is that right or something like that? Yeah, see, see, they got it. They got it vast backwards. They really do. Why they're going going to put more money in Pimlico? It's, I just think it's a huge mistake. Um, you know, there's no reason why they can't have the the Preakness and limp along. Maybe put 50 million into Pimlico and spruce it up a little bit and keep it going for another 10, 20 years. You know, the the city of Baltimore has them, it just has them by the short hair. So, um, you know, they're legally uh, obligated to run that race for, till from till time eternal, I think, at at Pimlico. But overall, if you ask any horseman, uh, including any of us who who worked the Maryland tracks for all those years, uh, Laurel was the better place to be and why they want to, uh, you know, the Laurel track itself has some, some problems inherent to where it's located uh, geographically. It's kind of on a bog and the turf course gets real uneven and other things. They got some water problems there, but uh, it's uh, obviously it's really complex, but bottom line is getting people to go to Pimlico, uh, you know, it's, 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 they're going to dump a half a billion dollars or something into it. And it's, it just, to me, it, it's a, it's a huge mistake. It's just, uh, uh, I don't know why they're doing it. I really don't. When was the last time you were there? 
Uh, well, I'd, you know, I would go up there and cover the Preakness. I didn't – actually, I was the only DRF guy at the, uh, the really odd October of 20 Preakness won by uh, Kenny's horse, uh, Swiss, Swiss Guy. Yeah. yeah, there weren't a 1,000 people in the stands that day. So I was there for that one. I was there for the 21 one when uh, Medina Spirit came, you know, amidst just mega controversy. Um, and those were years that Pridman, you know, Pridman was our main national guy, but, uh, you know, we would have four or five, six people, depending on what race was. Breeders' Cup or Derby, we'd, use, we'd usually have about six people. Um, <clears throat> so I think the last time I went to Pimlico was, uh, the 21 Preakness. Now, Laurel, I've gone back there. Hell, I was just back there in, uh, November or de- December with, I've, I've got a real good friend of mine. His name is, uh, Larry Horning. Uh, he trained for 35 years. He retired about 10 years ago, and he and I remain fast friends. And I'll go up there and stay with him, and we'll go fool around. We'll go to a ball game or definitely go to the track. He's got a, a boat. We'll go out on the Chesapeake Bay and go to Annapolis and stuff like that. I, I love Maryland. But uh, anyway, he was in a plane crash in 1985 coming back from uh, Saratoga, and there were three people on the plane. The other two died. One of them was Harrison Johnson, and they still run the Harrison Johnson stakes at, at Laurel. Right. Oh, really? Every year. And it just, I thought of that because of what happened last night when I was getting uh, text messages about Phil, uh, Phil Bauer being in that uh, plane crash. Miraculously, he and uh, uh, Richard, uh, Richard Rigney. Rigney. Yeah, Richard Rigney, they all, their, their wives, they all survived. It was, it was a miracle. We just discussed it. Yeah, you're right. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, but anyway, uh, I love going to Maryland. And, uh, so I've been to Laurel quite a bit. Just go there and actually I was passing out some Talamo cards. So <laughs> if the IRS asked me about it, yeah, I can, I can write off that trip. But yeah. There you go. So, all right, let's, let's, let's talk about uh, being a jockey agent real quick. Uh, I just have a couple of questions. First of all, I've, we've asked this for everybody, or I have. We asked uh, Rocco O'Connor, and I, I know I asked Liz Morris privately. Why can't a uh, a jockey's agent stand in the winter circle with a, with a winner? Well, he can't stand in the winter circle, and he can't go in the paddock. Um, I guess, Why is that? I guess it's too much ass kissing, is what it is. I don't I don't know. It, it, they would be they would be all over the place. Uh, we're enough of. A pest, anyway. I guess they don't. <laughs> those traders, they don't want us in their face down there in the winter circle or the paddock. So I, I would assume that's the reason why. To me, it makes sense, and I don't mind. Uh, you know, when I was making the final transition uh, in uh, April at, at the end of Keeneland. I was in the paddock. It was one of the last times I went in there. You know, during the races. But uh, Jose Sant- Jose Santos put on there the young Jose. Uh, no, no agents in the paddock, and uh, he put it on Twitter, so I got a big kick out of that. But, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, to me, that's that's the reason why. Uh, you know, we're we're enough of a yeah, we're we're hot after him anyway, so give him a little break, I guess. How do you do your homework? What 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 does that entail? A lot of replay work or, or handicapping, or what 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 do you do on your end? Well, as Ron Anderson. And Ron and I have been friends for almost 40 years because he was friends with Ron Ellis back in the day. And so, you know, Ron's career has obviously taken off and, and he has guys like Rosario and Frankie Dettori and Johnny Velasquez. And I've got Talamo and he says, Marty, our jobs really aren't 
alike at all because he is having to weed out uh, various, uh, you know, who he's going to ride for because he often has more than one call in a race, whereas I'm, you know, I've been averaging about three or four calls a day, and some of them are long shots. But uh, like I was telling you, you guys before this, uh, oftentimes I'll have a, or occasionally I will have a, two, more than one call in a race, and it's hard to kind of separate it. So <clears throat> first of all, you know, I just, I would like the opportunity to ride for more trainers. And, I've you know, I've got probably a dozen guys, Mike Stidham, Nacho Correas, Jordan Blair, Phil D'Amato, uh, Ian Wilkes has come around, Paulo Lobo, Tommy Drury, and and a few more. My brother I've won four or five races for. Uh, Andrew McKeever we won four or five races for. But I don't have the Brad Coxes and the Asmussen's and the Makers and the Sharps and a lot of those guys calling me all the time. So basically in my current position, and I really I fervently believe that Talamo is a an elite talent, and he's shown that before, and he's hell, he's a young guy, and he's strong, and he's hungry, uh, that he belongs with those elite riders who are getting more amounts and, and winning more races than us. But but generally, um, yeah, you, you, I'm taking what I can get right now, but, but when it comes to time, I'm going to be prepared because I do have the tools. I use the thorough manager that all the jockey agents use. I still have access to, to the DRF internal system. Thankfully, if you work there 31 years, you get to use that. I guess that's at least that's what they've way they've uh, haven't told me, but that's the way they've acted. And uh, nice perk. Yeah, it is, and I appreciate it. And you know, so um, just be prepared, pay attention. Uh, as Ron Anderson says, that there's really no. I couldn't. I couldn't give a seminar on how to do it. It's a lot of uh, trial and error, a lot of uh, circumstantial things uh, uh but uh I, I did i have made a couple of errors i made a real bad blunder toward the end of the uh churchill meet wherein i i gave two calls out in one race and it really angered one of the trainers and and it cost us a win and uh, joe was not happy and i wasn't happy and uh it's the kind of mistake i won't make again you know some of these races though like at, at kentucky downs uh, you'll get 30 maidens in one race you you gotta you, you should be able to give out more than two or three or four calls. One race I had, uh, I think, three or four calls, and, and, and you know, you got to scramble right at the draw. You do the draw by Zoom. and uh, But anyway, a lot happens at the draw there, not necessarily at Turfway or Ellis or something because a lot of the calls are already taken. But, but in this one particular incident, I gave out two calls. There were 15 in the race, and, of course, they both drew in, and the and I had promised both the trainers the call, and it's it's the kind of mistake I, I, I need not make again. And uh, um, but anyway, it's like Joe and I have discussed. I've done this for eight months now as a jockey agent, and I was a writer for 38 years. So maybe when I get a little more uh, experience under me, I'll I'll be doing a, a better job. Last question for me: uh, Do you think there there's a stigma? Or still a stigma attached to, to jockeys that ride a turfway over the winter? Is that a thing of the past because, you know, the purses are, are so much better, such a better product now? That is a great question because when people were asking me, even when I first started, everybody's always looking ahead. They said, are you going to be a ride a turfway? Well, Joe wants to. He has two sons that are, he and Elizabeth have two little boys. They're seven and, and five. 
and he wants to stick around here. Last year, uh, he, he, one of the reasons he, his business kind of went south was he went to Oakland part of the winter last year in Turfway and it just did not work and he, he was losing clientele over it and blah, blah, blah. But, but the original thing was, I don't, I don't know. Do we want to become typecast as quote unquote Turfway jockeys? And I had a concern about that, but given the way it's all played out, mm-hmm. there's some good, there's some good riders there. Damn and, straight. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's uh, it's not, let's say, uh, I remember when I was down at Gulfstream, my brother would run horses at night, and the only way to bet on them was stick around at the track there. And, and uh, you know, that was that was even before the purses really went south. You know, like in 2012, 2014, around there, they were really bad. I'm talking about in the late 90s, early 2000s. And, uh, you know, there was definitely, you're in a different world when you're at Gulfstream versus Turfway. But now that those worlds are coming closer together as this game has compacted, you know, and contracted. And, uh, uh, you know, there, there's less separation in terms of the, the talent levels, I think, uh, horses, trainers, and jockeys, uh, Turfway versus the, the so-called bigger circuits of Gulfstream, uh, Oaklawn, and, and Fairgrounds. All right, well, perfect. Uh, like I said, we're, we're we're glad you joined us. I'm gonna turn it over to Jeff Riggs, and he's he's got some questions for you as well. All right, Jeff, fire away. Yeah, thanks, CC, and yeah, thank you, Marty. I know uh, these guys have already said it, but as a fellow St. X Tiger, I just wanted to really thank you for joining us tonight. I was excited to have you on. Class of '77. How about yourself? <laughs> uh, 2004. Well, I think Phil Bauer was 2003, maybe, and correct me if I'm wrong, or maybe maybe a little later than that. And then uh, Whit Beckman, I don't know if you're aware of that. He was class of 2000, say next. Oh, okay. Great. Awesome. Yeah, I know uh, Joe Christofek had mentioned uh, him as being someone who would be good to have on, too, so we'll have to have Whit on here as well. Uh you know, every horse racing fan knows you're riding. I don't think a lot of people, though, really understand how much goes into every one of those stories that you put out that are that are so quality. You know, when it comes down to the timelines, doing research and tracking down quotes from whoever's involved. Uh, can you just kind of quickly walk us through your process of how you approach writing a quality story in a short amount of time consistently? Well, that's a good question. Like the Kent Sormo story back in 2013 that I that I won the Eclipse for, I probably put about 120 man hours into that. I traveled to uh, wow. Fort Lauderdale to see him. I, fl- I traveled to New Orleans uh, to see his, him and his family. Actually, it was just his family. It was Keith and I made the drive uh, one day from New Orleans down to uh, Erath was where it was, down in the, down in the way down the bayou. I saw the, uh, the only time I've ever really seen the crab uh, uh, crawdad fields. They were all over the place, but uh, anyway, uh, yeah, it just there was there was something that Dave Grinning wrote, I think today or yesterday, or uh, and I was like, oh man, I'm glad I didn't have to do that because people, <laughs> some people might think, okay, here you go, uh, well, what that take you twenty minutes to write or something? No, it takes hours to to uh, get some of the stuff that he had to collect for some story he did, and I'm trying right. to think what it was very recently, and. Uh, you know, it just made me tired thinking about what he, all he had to do to all the hoops he had to jump through. But it, it's like I was a journalism major at UK, uh, got out in 1982, and you always just kind of adhere to those tenets of of the craft. And there are no shortcuts, really. You, 
when you get more experience, you know how to do it a lot quicker than somebody else might because you're just so used to going through all those uh, steps. But um, there, there's a right way and a, long, a wrong way to do it, and uh, it just uh, it was just a kind of a skill set that I kind of accumulated over time and, and was really uh, became pretty proficient at it. And, uh, you know, when you combine the subject matter that I was dealing with, which I really was interested in, and uh, your acumen for, for uh, putting together a story, it, it becomes kind of easy. But, again, after you do it for so many years, and, and I did, it was just kind of tiresome to me and, uh, that's, that's one of the reasons that I, I really stepped down and, uh, but still, you, you get, there's nothing like a, a well-written story that can really grab uh, the reader. And that's what you're in the business for, really. That's why Daily Racing Forum has been, uh, you know, just such a, such a industry leader for so long is because they have quality journalists like Dave and they had Jay and, and hell, we had Hovde. Hovde, in my mind, was the best writer of my generation. No question. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, a number of other guys who are just really conscientious and, and hardworking. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's just such a big, big part of, of horse racing and the, the tight-knit community. And, you know, the, the daily racing forum is where everybody goes to, to see the breaking news. So, I mean, that's just it's, – it's what we depend on. So we definitely appreciate, you know, all the hard work that, that goes into pulling that off. And, you know, glad to see you thriving in, in your, your new endeavors as well now. I know you said there are some, you know, some hurdles that you have to, to get over with something new, but I'm sure it's fun having the, the new challenges as well, something a little new and different. Yeah, it um, is. You know, I told Joe, you know, he's a winner. I view myself as a winner. We're, we're not winning as much as we want to, but we will. And again, uh, he's, he's such a great guy. Uh, he turns 34 on Friday, January 12th is his birthday. So you guys might want to be on the lookout for that night. Uh, I think we got a couple of good mounts that night, but anyway, um, there you go. You know, I just, uh, you know, again, I can't say enough good things about him. Absolutely. You know, being a Louisville guy, Kentucky guy, um, I know Kentucky Derby, I'm sure is near and dear to your heart. Uh, do you have, Maybe one Kentucky Derby winner that stands out either betting wise or sentimental wise. Gato del Sol. I was a senior at UK, and one of the last uh, columns I wrote, I picked him to win. He paid forty four dollars, and I bet fifty dollars on him. Of course, I leave out the part where I went back over the next couple of weeks, lost all the money back, probably more. But anyway, <laughs> uh, just him. I watched it from the ground floor right around to the finish line. We used to sneak in with those bands. You know, they had those armbands, those colored armbands, and we would sneak into the into the clubhouse section there and watch the race from there. But uh, ground floor, I just remember he came by us uh, in last place. They didn't have the big board back then or anything you could watch it on. You were just kind of at the mercy of the horses running right past you. He was last coming past us, and then when they came down the stretch, and you can hear the, the noise building, uh and, and his here was his gray head coming down the stretch, and, and uh, just I went berserk. And, <laughs> That's but, awesome. And, but sentimentally, I think that uh, Cannon Narrow, even before I, you know, when I was too young, and I, my dad would always go to the Derby, and, and when Cannon Narrow won a '71, my first Derby was '74, and he's I said, Dad, what, what was that like? And he said, Well. Here came number 15 down the stretch, and everybody looked down at their programs and said, who is 15? And, of course, he <laughs> went off, and he won the Preakness, and it was, a, it was a fabulous story. And then Eric Reed and I were, were real good friends. He used to come up and sit in the uh, 
back in the, in the back in the press box at Keeneland just to get away from the crowd. He and his wife Kay would come back there, and he was buddies with Steve Klein, who of course wrote for us for years as our handicapper, and and we became friendly over the years. And then when he won uh, in twenty two with Keen Ice, it was just unbelievable. And uh, I don't know if you guys saw him quit on Twitter. I gave him a big kiss on his cheek when he came down. <laughs> oh yeah, we saw it. Definitely, yeah. It's just, and for weeks afterward, you know, I was, I was, uh, you know, assigned to, because uh, I'm, I was a Kentucky guy and he was a Kentucky guy, and he didn't run on the Preakness. He didn't run anyway. I had to talk to him all the time, and uh, text, and I would, I'd say, oh, oh, by the way, you won the Derby. I mean, how <laughs> great is that? He, Eric Reed, won the Derby. I mean, it's just still unbelievable. It, it really is. is. It is it awesome. Really is. Yeah, I was wondering if that's where you were going to go with uh, looking down at the program, because that's sure where I was with Rich Strike. I was looking down, I saw that, that 20, and I was, I was like, 21. 21. 21. Yeah, 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 21. My girlfriend, I thought it was the two. Yeah, yeah they left yeah. 21 off the little program, and so my girlfriend could not figure out for minutes after the race who won the race, because right. she didn't have a 21 yeah. on the program. So. I'll be damned. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. Well, you alluded to this a little bit earlier as well, but I know you've, you've been all around the country, uh, you know, following racing, and you've lived in different cities and stuff. Uh, what's your favorite city to work in, and what is your favorite city that you would want to live in other than Louisville? I would love to live in Sierra Madre, California. They don't even have a stoplight. Nice. It's, where, it's where Charlie Whittingham's buried. You got, but Joe, Joe and Elizabeth live there, and that's one of the reasons they moved. He said you got to have a lot of money to live there. And, uh, but anyway, it is a wonderful place. Uh, I loved the Jersey Shore the one summer I lived there. I thought it, uh, Monmouth got a horrible, uh, rap and, and just bad luck. It, this could have happened to Keeneland or anywhere else. When they ran the Breeders' Cup there in 07, they had great infrastructure for an event like the Breeders' yeah. Cup. Why yeah. nobody has ever said, let's return it back there? Well, we had the monsoon. Well, you know, it could have happened to Keeneland any of the times they had it here. As you know, but uh, anyway, uh, and I I did enjoy. I lived in, on Hollywood Beach uh, off and on since '96 every winter, and that was nice. Except I, I I really don't like what they did with Gulfstream when they tore it down in '03 '04. It was such a wonderful place. It was very much like Mammoth in terms of the track layout, but just the ambiance and everything. And then they built it into this monstrosity where they can't even host a Breeders' Cup, and it's just... Yeah. Part of a mall. It's part of a mall. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, I do like going to Tampa. I'm planning on a trip with some buddies, some Maryland buddies. We're going to meet down there for the Tampa Bay Derby and go to some Grapefruit League. Very cool. But, uh, yeah, it's fun. It's, it's a nice area. So, uh, yeah. But I, I would live in either... If I w- didn't live in Kentucky, uh, I would live in Maryland or, or California. I hear you. Perfect. So I'll toss you back over to Alan here in a minute, but just before I let you go, anytime we have somebody on here who's a handicapper at heart, I always want to ask about if you have a favorite handicapping angle or a couple go-to angles, and where do you start when you are breaking down a race? Well, if I'm doing a 90-second drill, I look at the trainers first because they're, they're the ones doing the most work, and they're they're the one who's, you know, can rely on their – they're more or less a brand name. You know, it's a, it's a Cox or if it, it's an – you know, Apollo Lobo or whatever. And uh, that's the first thing I look at. I have a really angle that I like. I don't know that I've hit too many times on it, but whenever a horse breaks, a uh, first-timer breaks from the rail and doesn't run that well, you can you can just 
forgive it because that is such a tough assignment. Couldn't and, agree more. Couldn't yes. agree more. And, yeah, and I think we, we're all in that camp as well. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's had that difficulty first time out and he's had the experience. And if he gets like the outside box, that would be ideal. So that, oh, that's yeah. one angle. I love that angle. It's my buddy, Larry Horning, who I was telling you about the, the retired trainer in Maryland, but we call it the system. The system. I like it. <laughs> all right. Well, um, Thank you very much for joining us, Marty. I'll, I'll toss it back to Alan. I think he has a couple more things he wanted to say before letting you go. Yeah, I got to. I got to wrap this up with a couple here. But um, I want you to brag on your boy, Smoking Joe, for a little bit, too, before we go. I mean, you, you do represent him. He he was really good to me a couple of weeks ago with uh, Nacho's two-item saber. Uh, <laughs> he was just a perfect ride on the criminally underbed horse that day, which I also appreciated. I, I get the feeling it's one of those you knew two times. You knew that he was going to run well. It's, I think that's how we kind of hooked up here or whatever. But uh, number one, did you know he was going to went run that well? I I kind of did. And secondly, uh, brag on Joe a little bit. Well, two item saver. You you know you could Should see have on been nine four, to five. Should have been nine to five. <laughs> yeah, he he paid what almost seven to one, and uh, he had run. Uh, it's a she, I think. It's a Philly. Yeah, it's a she. Yeah, she she had run a uh, uh, won a, an allowance race, albeit in like a four or five horse field at Keeneland by thirteen lengths. Nonetheless, she had gone through that one X, uh, winning by that much, and then she had had a race. That was the key. She'd had a race after a layoff, and then you know, it, Joe has ridden so many races like that. Where here's here's what I really like about Joe's riding. You know, the, apart from how much I adore him as a human being and a dad and all that um he smooths them i call it you know just s-m-o-o-t-h-e-s he smooths them out early he gets them in that rhythm which is so key to to saving for the end and he's just really good at breaking and smoothing them real quick in, in very quick order and getting them in a clean spot where they can just have those ears just pricking and, and just in a lope, in a nice lope. And then that's the way he had ridden a two-item saver. He had, he won a race at uh, Kentucky Downs on a horse named Purple Dream. Mm-hmm. And you guys got to remember, he rode for many years in what, what we all regarded as the deepest jockey colony in the country when I was out at, in uh, Southern California with Nakatani and Solis. And I think McCarran was still there when maybe not, but uh, – you know, it has traditionally been uh, Mike Smith and Joe were really good friends. Uh, all the good riders were out there. Now, things have changed over the last, what, five, six, seven years with the with the bigger purses uh, because of the gaming, which California does not have gaming. That's what's put them behind the eight ball. You know, that's a whole other thing. But anyway, Joe rode for 13 years out in California, and uh he knows he knows what he's doing out there, and he's remained very hungry. He's re- remained extremely fit. He's in the prime of his life. Like I said, he's going to turn 34 on th- on Friday, and uh, he he's a workaholic. He's he's just he goes and works out at the gym. He's got a personal trainer. He uh, he doesn't have trouble with weight, uh, and to me, that's that, you know a guy like Pat Day. He had an advantage. He got to eat. Joe gets to eat. You know, some of these guys don't get to eat, and. Uh, so, yeah, I, I just uh, his ride on two item saver was just very typical in that he smoothed her early, saved ground, tipped out, and then he's got, 
he's got a nice left hand too. I mean, he just really, I, I'm just a huge fan of his, the way he can, he can get into a horse and just will them to, to, to run. So I have always felt that in a two turn race, you put him on your speed horse, he's going to dole you out, get that horse relaxed, dole you out those 12s, those 12 yep. second splits. And I mean, I know he does it for your brother, but the, what's that horse? Big blue, not big blue kitten. Something. Big blue line. Yeah. Big blue line. Yeah. And he, he wrote a great race on him on uh, miles ahead and we're, we're hoping to win the King Cotton on the 27th at Oakland. With, with well, let's hope you do. Yeah. But yeah, we're all fans of Joe and I appreciate it today. And I, and I think he might be live a few times this week. If I've glanced ahead a little bit, just, I would just maybe keep that in mind a little bit, but I'm sure you probably feel the same way. Yeah, we got one on Thursday that we got an eight to five shot on Thursday. Who should win? And then we got a couple in on uh, tomorrow, uh, Wednesday night that that should be real tough. Yeah, I think I looked at those. Last question for you, and I would be remiss if I did not ask um, this because I am 53. I've been going to church. I'm native of Louisvilleian. Been going to church lands my whole life, and you're um, you've been going your whole life, right? Even since before I was. Um, there's a lot of newer faces out there do a great job at Churchill, you know, but they, they're not old school guys like we are, right? And CC and Jeff eventually. Um, <laughs> is it, would these po- folks out there today even recognize the Churchill Downs today as opposed to the Churchill Downs of the 80s and the 90s, right? It, it, it's a stark difference. You've been going there for a long time, right? Yeah, it really is. I mean, Joe Christofek and I, we've been friends since I went to, uh, I worked in Chicago, uh, quite a bit. I went to a bunch of Arlington meetings starting in 93. He and I have been friends since 93. We used to go to Cubs games and stuff. He's a sharp guy and he's a good guy. It really and, is. Yeah. And But but overall, I, I get the gist of your question. The place has transformed so much into such a corporate entity. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's not a, a great secret that sometimes it's just for the, for the big money people and the showy thing and, and the kids who are out there not really betting because, uh, Churchill, <laughs> they've got their casinos. They've got their apps. They've got the Derby. Uh, they want you to bet on the Twin Spires as opposed to being out there, even, you know, even if they're making a couple nickels on, on $9 beers or whatever. But, uh, yeah, it is. And we just have to accept that, Alan, that, that it's it's changing times. We don't want to be the old man shaking our fist at the clouds. It, right. It's just, that's the way it is. And uh, nonetheless, we do have our memories of what it was like, and uh, that's something we should hold on to uh, hold on to dearly. The cobblestone grandstand, you know, the the uneven bricks in the in the grandstand, the the troughs hanging off the walls, right? The the paper cup beers, the beers in the Harry Stevens paper cups. Uh, that's okay. the, the, the 25 cent pencils. Yeah, I've got <laughs> stories about all of them. The bricks, that's where we all met. That's where my family met. We just said, meet me on the bricks. We meet yeah. Me on the bricks. My brother used to say that those Harry M. Stevens had, uh, his, his brother-in-law would say they're Quaalude lace because you drink five or, five or six of those Harry M. Yes. Stevens wax paper cup beers and you're like in La La Land. It's and, a different uh, taste too, right? Yeah, yeah it is. And I had a, and I had a bathroom that it was in, tucked away in the corner near the paddock that nobody all the other bathrooms would be crowded but they had the troughs over there and uh and and the one in the corner and that's been gone for many years <laughs> in a pinch in a pinch that's what you need right so uh the old timers the old timers going there 
Uh, Marty, I, we could have talked to you for hours. That's not a cliche. That's the truth. You've got a wealth of knowledge, a wealth of experience behind you. Maybe we'll do this again someday and just start touching on some other things and stuff. If you're if you're keen for it, uh, it's just too much fun not to. Yeah, hey. let's let's do it in a year. You guys meet me back here in a year after after we're back in uh, in the dead of January, and we got we need to talk about something. You got it, brother. We thank you so much, Marty, for joining us. Okay. Jeff and CC and Alan, thank you guys. Appreciate it. Thank you, Marty. Thank you, Marty. All right, that was Marty McGee, a local legend. He uh, formerly worked for the Daily Ration Forum. We're happy he joined us this evening. I got to say though, wish I told him. I forgot to tell him while he's on the air. That man is a hero to us horse players because he used to tweet the Keeneland scratches early in the morning before anybody else. That's that's cannot be understated, can it? That, that is that very, is, very key. That is the type of, uh, of, of work that I appreciate. I, I, we all, all, all horse players appreciate that extra effort. Uh, yeah, Kevin Kirsting does that for, uh, Churchill. That is very good at that. And, Churchill uh, and Turfway. Yeah, he even gets Turfway. the Turfway ones out early. Yeah. 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 You now, know, Teddy Armstrong does it for fairgrounds. So shout out to him. Patty oh, Kirsten. really? Yeah. Uh, getting back to Marty real quick. I mean, it's, it is kind of weird, CC, growing up reading it. Cause he's not that much older than I am, right? But so getting up, growing up, reading his stuff in the forum, and now having him on talking about it, there's there's a touch of surreal. It's like when we had Pat Day on the past, or Charlie Lepresti, or or Buff Bradley. It's uh, there's a touch of for long time guys like ourselves. There's there's something surreal about that, isn't it? Yeah. Well, that's what's great about the game. It's it's really accessible. It, that's a great great point. Yes. It's, it, now I think I think you could argue is more accessible in the past than it is now, but yeah, that's one of the the many many facets of the game that's uh, that's enjoyable. Is is yeah, it's we don't know it, but we 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 kind of grew up alongside the the people that we not necessarily idolize, but people that uh, we respect. Yes. So yeah, it's the, it's the legends legends of the game. Yeah. 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 I, I never dreamed that we'd have a we'd have a set down interview with Marty McGee of the Daily Racing Forum. That's 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 nuts in a way. But yeah, it is. here it we is. are. Where here we are. It's like, you know, we we were the fan of Michelle's work, right? Just just we were just fans. We didn't know Michelle. She's one of our best friends now, right? It's it's it, watching Wise Dan run winning all those races at uh over the years, you know, we were big fans of the horse. We had just you know, we, we got to know his trainer and stuff from after he retired. It's, there are perks to this it, it sounds lame but there are perks of this outside of just money money comes and goes and stuff you know we make some money here and there but uh, that's once one of the perks of this thing all right let's uh let's wrap this bad boy up uh anything else uh, oh uh i would uh recommend keeping the family of riley mott absolutely uh, in your prayers yes, definitely. Uh, it's uh, nothing's come out uh from a from a source yet, but it, I think they're having a, a bad time. So just keep them in your thoughts and prayers. And uh, yeah, so uh, but uh, outside of that, I, I can't think of anything else. Uh, Alan, give us a horse this week. Oh, a horse that's terrible. I just looked at tomorrow's cards. Joe's on one that might that we're talking. You, part you're of talking about Wednesday. Wednesday's card. Wednesday. Yeah, uh, Curl Grub. The horse be favored, but, but let's go over to their price. You know, I'm a price guy. Let's look at a. Uh, Command Central in the fourth race tomorrow. If if my buddy Farron doesn't draw another race or whatever, she, um, that said, Command Central gets off the rail, drops from eight thousand. Comes out the same race as the favorite. Uh, 
the favor would get hammered. This horse would get forgotten about. Maybe the favor goes off seven to five. Maybe Command Central runs it down at six to one. But it's gonna it's gonna need a little pace to beat the favorite name clear for action. But what the heck? Will you eat a can of cat food if that horse loses? No, we're not going that far. What? No, 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 not at not at all. <laughs> all right, all right. That's that's all I've got. Uh, let's let's uh, end this right here and right now. Uh, on behalf of uh, our special guest Marty McGee, and of course Brandon Jaggers, who's not here and he's late, uh, late coming home from work. Of course, Jeff Riggs and Alan Schneider. I'm CC Broadus, reminding you, in the words of our spiritual leader, Jerry Romans, we're not happy unless you're not happy. Good night.